Um, I'm going to be reading out of uh, Luke chapter 2, uh, the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book in the New Testament. Uh, it's going to be on your screen if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, but you can follow along. There's Bibles in the seats in front of you or on your electronic device. This is kind of the classic Christmas story. So I'll give you a few moments to find that, and we'll read that together. But before I do, just a huge thank you to everybody who helped make Incarna happen. Incarna was a kind of a Christmas interactive art installation that we had here at the church this past week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Um, we didn't really track uh, um, numbers in any kind of precise way, but my guesstimation over three nights is that we probably had a uh, little over 100 people come. And lots of unfamiliar faces to me, which is great. That means that people either heard about it through you or through uh, community uh, papers and ads that we put out. So thank you for that. Thank you for the artists who did such a great job. And thank you for those of you who uh, volunteered your time to help set up, tear down, pray for people, uh, just be involved in some way. It was really, really special. And uh, I hope for those of you who did participate that it really helped you um, move into the, uh, kind of this final leg of Christmas in a way that is, um, yeah, maybe a little bit slower, a little bit more intentional. So, uh, so here we are, Sunday before Christmas. The countdown is on. Only 24 more hours until I'll be watching The Force Awakens in the Nelson Theater. I'm pretty super stoked about that. It's a big week for me. Oh man. And uh, I'll be flying high on Christmas Eve. You're going you're gonna to notice a difference in my energy. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available to them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in, da in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds had uh, said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told, about, told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So we're in this little short series moving into Christmas called Reframing Christmas. And my goal is very, very simple. I want you to think about Christmas differently 
And I want you to, in thinking about Christmas differently, apply Christmas differently to your life. And not just during the Christmas season, but to uh, all, throughout the year. Because the story of Christmas and what's happening at Christmas isn't something that's simply for a particular season um, of the year or a season of life. It's meant to impact the totality of how we move into the world as human beings. Um, what I've been doing, and I started last week, is the way that I want to reframe Christmas for you is to reframe some of the pictures that dominate your imagination during this Christmas season. I talked last week about how culturally we have these symbols of Christmas, soft lights, uh, different uh, uh, nativity scenes that, that uh, crop up. Um, we have these images that over time can kind of get in the way, they can run interference on us understanding the, the original pictures of Christmas, and therefore they can run interference on us experiencing the glory and depth of Christmas. So we have these nice cultural images, but the danger is, is that the nicer we make Christmas, the harder it is to experience the glory of Christmas. Last week I talked about the fact that the nicer you make Christmas, the harder it is to feel the power of God. If you don't understand Herod and the first century context of first century Judaism, and specifically if you have no context for this person called Herod the Great, the power of Christmas kind of gets lost on you. And today I want to throw out the idea that the nicer we make Christmas, the harder it is to feel the grace of God. Grace is this word that means uh, unmerited favor, undeserved uh, love, undeserved blessing. A gracious person is someone who extends to us a posture of humility and love that, that, is, that is undeserving, that we haven't earned, but out of their gracious, graciousness, they extend it. And the Christmas story is a story of grace, and uh, probably we all kind of get that on some level, but if we substitute and introduce a few new pictures into our mind's eye, that grace I think grips us in a new and fresh way, in a really, really powerful way. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend today just looking at one group within this larger Christmas story, and that group is the shepherds. They aren't the main event, they're kind of supporting cast in, in the overall drama of Christmas, but I think if we understand what's happening with this group called the shepherds and why they're included in the Christmas story, I really think you know, we will leave this morning a little bit more awestruck and a little, uh, hearts that are a little bit more softer and a little bit more open to the greatness and the grandeur of Christmas. Okay, first we need to start with a bit of a geography lesson because that's going to help us situate what's going on with the shepherds. So if you look at the uh, land of Israel, the land of Israel is divided north and south by four sections. I've talked about this before, but these four sections run north to south. Uh, starting on the west, you have the coastal plains, which is the major economic route. There's a big highway called the Via Maris that runs north and south. That was the major trade artery in the ancient world. Then you have the Shefela, which was a low-lying um, field plain, uh, and it was uh, f fairly flat. And then um, you move into the mountain regions, and the mountain regions is where traditionally most of God's people spent most of their time uh, li uh, living. And then you go a little bit more east, and then you have the wilderness area. And this is where the terrain starts to get rocky, inhospitable, very, uh, very, very challenging. Now, throughout, biblical, um, throughout the biblical story, these strips of land 
get, you know, come into play in all kinds of ways. David battles Goliath on the Shephelah. The Philistines live on the coastal plains. Um, so in different biblical stories, the geography of Israel kind of, um, well, sorry, some people have called the geography of Israel the fifth gospel. In that, when you understand the context and the geography of Israel, what happens is kind of new dimensions of the story kind of pop out of the pages. And in the Christmas story, the elements of this of, of, of the geography of Israel that come into play are the mountain regions and the wilderness regions. And that's because in biblical times, shepherds lived primarily in the wilderness areas. They were nomadic. They would take their herds of sheep throughout the wilderness. They were, um, they weren't, because they were nomadic, they weren't localized to a certain region. So they would travel north and south up through the wilderness, making sure that their sheep had grazing land. And farmers lived in the mountainous area because on the mountains there was good soil for farming. And so you could create these layered gardens called gons that build up the mountains. You can look that up if, if, you're, so, if you're so inclined. But there were these really neat gardens that, kind of like Nelson, were built into the side of mountains and they had very, very good soil. So farmers are kind of lived in the mountain area. Um, shepherds lived in the wilderness. And the reason why this is important is because in the Christmas story, both of those groups intersect. Because Bethlehem, if you'll see in the next slide, is one of the villages that is just on the border between the mountain region and the wilderness region. So, um, can we go to the next slide there, Greg? There we go. So there's, there's Bethlehem. It's right on the edge of where the mountains transition into being wilderness. And there was a few times a year where farmers and shepherds, their lives kind of overlap. Normally they didn't. You didn't want shepherds being where farmers were because shepherds have sheep. Sheep eat crops. Crops are what you stay alive through. So you don't want shepherds and farmers overlapping very much. But there's a, a one time a year you definitely wanted it to overlap. And that was during the fall after the final harvest. Because what would happen is the farmers would do their final harvest and there'd be some crops that hadn't been gleaned yet. And what they would do is they would allow the shepherds to bring the sheep in from the wilderness and they would glean the fields. The, the sheep would have their fill. The farmers weren't going to do any more gleaning. And they said to the shepherds, you're allowed to, to have your sheep come onto our fields and, and they can eat. And there was a benefit to the farmers because the sheep would leave their droppings, which would help fertilize the land so that in the spring, you, you would have the cycle of life thing happening and you'd have uh, the soil would be set for a better crop in the new year. And so when the Bible says that there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby Bethlehem, that gives us a clue as to, pretty significant clue, as to when Jesus was uh, likely born. And it was probably September, October. That's why most people, it's, it's from this um, little tip of, uh, this little um, indication in Luke of why people believe that Jesus was likely born sometime in the harvest season before Passover. Most people put Jesus' birthday sometime around September or October because it coincides with this piece of evidence from Luke. Now, I want to talk about these shepherds for a moment and their significance in terms of Bethlehem. Who are these shepherds? Well, if you were fed a steady diet of children's Bibles and uh, the pictures that come along with them, you probably got the impression that shepherds were these rugged, strong, blue-collar 
kind of salt of the earth guys. However, the more you research shepherds within Israelite culture, the more that picture has to kind of give way to the truth. First, shepherding involved a lot of activities that rendered you ceremonially unclean in terms of the Jewish ceremonial law given in Leviticus. And because of this, shepherds were, it made it very difficult for shepherds to participate in the regular life, worshiping life of the community of Israel. What that meant is over time, shepherds came to be viewed, not biblically, not in the sense that this is the way God wanted it to be, but culturally within their context, they began to be viewed as kind of second-class citizens. They were seen as doing very demeaning work, not, not, um, not in the way that uh, some people might say, hey, you know, I look down on blue-collar workers or construction workers, not like that, not that they're doing hard work, that's, that's dignified, they were, they were seen as doing work that was kind of necessary but undignified. Maybe in some, um, um, in some places where people might look down on, the way that people would look down on people who live off welfare or who are stuck by seemingly their own choices or people view it as their own choice to be stuck in these low-level um, service-oriented jobs that don't really have any social cachet. That's the way shepherds were viewed by their peers, by fellow Israelites in the first century context. So when you think about shepherds, you shouldn't picture these men who were thought to be doing kind of tough but dignified work and who were kind of respected as, as, the, as the, the working class of Israel. And actually, you shouldn't picture men at all because then, like today, shepherding is very rarely done by men. Most shepherding is done by little children and by women. I have a picture here of an actual Bedouin child who's a shepherd in um, at the Middle East. Shepherding families were led by men, but when it came to the actual shepherding of flocks and sheep, that was very, very easy work. And so in that culture, they said it was so easy, women and children can do it. And even elderly women were encouraged to do it because it just, um, it didn't, it was a low, low level of skill. You just had to basically, generally speaking, kind of herd sheep from one area to another. And men in the family might work as kind of like a foreman. They'd be off in the distance, sometimes miles away from the actual flock. But it, the frontline shepherds, are young boys, young girls, and women. So when the scripture says in verse 8 that there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks, so these are the shepherds that are with the flocks, what we need to picture in our mind is this. We need to picture little boys and girls, 4, 8, 10, 12 years old, out in the fields, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. They were terrified. This picture is a really important part of the Christmas story. It's important to get this into our, into our mind's eye. Because it's a continuation of a pattern that has always been there in Scripture. It shows up in the Old Testament. It shows up in the life of Jesus and the Christmas story. And it continues 
in the birth of the church and the explosion of the church in the New Testament. And that pattern is this. That the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, when God starts to do something in the world, almost always God starts at the bottom. He almost always starts in the places that you would least expect. He doesn't start in the corridors of power. The kingdom of God doesn't break through among the elite. It breaks through. God starts his revolutions of love and redemption amongst classes of people that are dismissed and often demeaned by their dominant culture. The kingdom of God breaks in via people and groups that, this, that, the, that the culture of the day tends to, um, tends to almost not even recognize. These people groups aren't on the radar because they don't, they don't hold any power. They're not significant. They're not power brokers. But God has this habit of choosing the weak and despised things in order to shame the strong or what society views at the time as the strong. But three decades later, a guy who becomes a Christian after an encounter with Jesus, he's planting churches, his name is Paul. He goes to a church called, uh, in, in a Roman city called Corinth. He writes a, a two letters to them. Uh, in his first letter to the Corinthians, he reminds them of this truth. He says this in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 31. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Remember, when you became a Christian, remember who you were. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Now again, just note, he doesn't say all of you. But he says not many. Some of you were, but not many of you. Very few of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you had noble birth. That was a big deal in those days. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom from God that is righteousness and holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. See, if you read the Bible carefully, you'll note that God almost never uses the conventional instruments of power to accomplish his purposes. Whenever God, in fact, the greater the thing that God tends to do, the weaker the instrument God tends to use so that that instrument itself can't boast and say, well, of course God did this amazing thing. Look what he's using. And also so that the world watching says, that's got to be God because we know it wasn't that person. God, there's this amazing pattern. Uh, here, here are a few. Sorry, I lost my place. Here are a few. God says, I'm going to deliver Israel. I'm going to take a whole, sorry, I'm going to deliver a, a, a group of slaves. I'm going to make them into Israel. I'm going to turn them into a nation. Okay, God, how are you going to do that? What's the instrument of your power through which you're going to deliver Israel? God says, I'm going to use a stick. In some Bibles, a rod. That's what I'm going to use. And I'm going to use a person 
who can't finish a sentence without stuttering to do it, Moses. A disgraced, murderous ex-Egyptian with a stick, that will be the instrument of my deliverance. Okay, interesting. I'm going to deliver my people from the Midianites, God says. This warring clan that was uh, savagely oppressing Israel at one point in their history. Great, God, what are you going to do? Are you going to raise up an army of 20,000? No, that's too much. What about 10? No, I'll keep going lower. What about 1,000? No, what about 500? No, keep going lower. 300, perfect, 300. Great, what weaponry are we going to use? We're not going to use weapon. I want you to take a bowl. I want you to hide it over a lamp. Uh, I want you to smash it, and we're going to defeat the armies of the Midianites that way. That's how we're going to deliver Israel from the hand of the mighty Midianites. And by the way, I'm going to use a reluctant nobody, in his own words, the least of his family, the least of his clan, a guy who's hiding in fear of the Midianites. He doesn't have, he's no warrior. Uh, a guy named Gideon. He's going to lead that army of 300. I'm going to take down the walls of Jericho. Wow, it's pretty amazing. Jericho's pretty much impregnable. Yeah, I know. I'm going to take it down. How are you going to do it? I'm going to get the people of God to go around over seven days and just going to worship. I'm just going to sing. They're going to blow the ram's horn every day. And on the, uh, on the seventh day, they're going to they're blow it seven times. Okay, that's neat. And then the army comes? No, no, that's it. Then the walls are going to come down, and then I'll hand the city over to my people. Whew. I'm going to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Wow, that's pretty impressive. How are you going to do that, God? I'm going to use um, a little sling, five stones. Actually, I'm only going to need one, but I'm going to take five. And I'm going to use a shepherd man. Nah, no, shepherd boy. Shepherding is boys' work. It's little boys' work. I'm going to use a little shepherd boy. That's how I'm going to defeat the mighty Philistines. What? How do you read the Bible? Do you read the Bible? Do you assume the Bible is this, story, this, this collection of great people who did great things for God, and God kind of in posterity made sure that we had their record so that we could read those stories and, and rise to their level of faith and courage and greatness and boldness and, and might? If that's the way you read the Bible, you are reading it incorrectly. You are not reading it the way it's meant to be read. Because the Bible is a story about a great God who uses failed, broken, very unheroic people to do great things. And they're recorded so that we understand that God could even use broken, frail, unheroic people like me and like you to do great things. That's why they're recorded. God is the hero of the Bible. There are no heroes of the Bible. God is the only hero. God loves to overthrow the expectations and standards of the world. And the world in the Bible just means people's conception of the way life is when they don't factor in God the equation. What, what seems to be the case in their own eyes. What common sense dictates. God loves to confound that common sense that would say, well, if there is this wise and powerful and mighty God, let, let's, just con let's just concede that argument. Let's say there is that God surely he would reward and bless. The, the, the people that would have a natural in to a God like that would be the mighty and the wise and the powerful and the dominant and the elite and the intellectuals. The, the cream of the crop would be closest to God, right? That, that, that makes sense. That's how the world thinks. 
But God says, no, I don't choose those people. I don't choose the well-bred and the wise and the articulate and the gifted and the wealthy, those who wield worldly power to accomplish my purposes. I choose shepherds. God says, I choose shepherds. Do you see what I mean when I say the nicer you make Christmas, the harder it is to feel the grace of God? See, if we don't have these pictures in our mind, if we don't have them sorted out right, Christmas is nice. It'll evoke some warm fuzzies. We might even sing carols with tears in our eyes. But the tears are tears of sentimentality. When we have the right pictures in our mind's eyes, the tears aren't sentimental tears. They're actual tears that sing the words, what child is this? What kind of love is this that this love and this God would choose me? I'm just a shepherd. I'm not, that's, I'm, I'm not a straight-A student. I don't have a PhD. I don't have a seminary degree. I don't, have, I don't have all the connections that you're supposed to have in order to get things done in this world. I'm not on the top. I'm on the bottom. But that's what makes Christmas so awesome and so beautiful. Because we're all shepherds. And Christmas is for shepherds. And if you understand that you're a shepherd, then Christmas is good news because the good news of Christmas breaks in with the shepherds. The angels come to those no one would have imagined. Nelson Covenant Church, think about what you were when you were called. Think about what you were when you became a Christian. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you had noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. See, Christmas is glorious because Christmas is for nobodies. Christmas is for losers. Another biblical word for loser is sinner. Christmas is for sinners and losers like you and me. People who don't hit the mark, who miss the mark constantly, who even some of our peer group looks down their nose at us. That's the good news of Christmas. See, Christianity isn't a meritocracy. Christianity isn't a system where if you're good enough and religious enough and strong enough and willful enough and righteous enough, then maybe you can get into God's good books. It's the exact opposite. It's, we, we have no leg to stand on. And yet God comes to us. Not because of how great we are, but because of how great he is. He's the one who condescends to our level. And the shepherds in the Christmas story should remind us of that fact every time we read about it, every time we hear about it. Christmas is a story of how God breaks into the world, but he gives nobody's front row tickets. God breaks into the world in a powerful way, and he gives losers the front row tickets. He gives them VIP access. To me, that's amazing. That is beautiful. I was reading one um, pastor who wrote this, and I can't improve upon it, so I'm just going to read it to you. He says, you know what? Things haven't changed. 
since that night more than 2,000 years ago, Jesus still accepts us as we are without religious performances. Jesus welcomes the lost, the least, the little, the fragile, the broken, the used, the discarded. Jesus isn't looking for shooting stars, but rather those who are willing to be lights right where they are. He is the Lamb of God come into our world to set things right between man and God. So if you're unclean, and if you're a misfit, and if you're a loser, then guess what? I have good news for you. There's one more thing I want to show you that I think you need to know about the shepherds before I close things off. There was something unique about the shepherds of Bethlehem. Do you ever wonder why God chose to reveal, um, the, chooses to announce the birth of this king to shepherds? We know it's part of the story, but if you ever asked yourself, why did that actually happen? Why would God choose shepherds? Okay, now you're thinking, okay, maybe it's this whole theme that God chooses the weak things, the despised things. Shepherds are kind of weak and not seen as very dignified, so maybe that's part of it. I think that's a huge part of it. Um, I think that that insight and that biblical pattern helps us to understand why God would announce to shepherds. But there's another very important dimension to the Christmas story that has to do, um, that reveals why God would reveal himself in this way to these shepherds. The Mishnah, which is the first section of a massive commentary that was written by ancient Jewish rabbis that's called the Oral Tradition, which is basically what we would think of today as like a commentary. You have the Bible, and then you have people's interpretation of the Bible and how it's supposed to be lived. That was, a, that was called the, the, the Oral uh, Tradition. The first section is called the Mishnah. And in chapter 7, verse 4, there's this language which scholars are trying to unpack, they're trying to understand the significance of it, but the latest research indicates that the Mishnah seems to point us to the fact that only sheep from the flocks of Bethlehem were ever allowed to be used in the temple sacrifices during the time of Passover, late into the fall. What that means is only perfect male lambs that had no blemish, they had no fault, physical defect, mismarkings. Only those could be used for sacrifices at the temple. And so it was the job of shepherds in and around Bethlehem for 30 days prior to the Passover celebration to make sure that they had sectioned out perfect, spotless lambs. They would bring those lambs to the temple. Um, They would be particip- they would be involved in some of the temple sacrifices. They would also be used to, s- to sell to people because some people didn't have access to their own lambs. So you could go during the Passover and you could buy a lamb for your own Passover meal with your family. And the Mishnah seems to indicate that all the lambs that were used for that purpose came from the flocks around Bethlehem. They had to be um, segregated out 30 days, no longer than 30 days before um, the Passover celebration in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not that far away. It's only about four miles away. So this was kind of like the industrial complex where you'd get so many of these lambs. And there was a lot of lambs. Don't, don't, fi- don't picture in your mind's eye ten little lambs walking along the hillside. These were massive flocks. So people who didn't have access to a lamb could buy their own from the temple, celebrate God's Passover. What was the Passover celebration? Passover celebration commemorated the time where God's people were told to kill a lamb 
perfect lamb, smear its blood over the doorposts of their home, so that the tenth plague on Egypt, the tenth judgment, the angel of death would swoop down on any home that didn't have, wasn't covered by lamb's blood, the firstborn son would die. So the angel of death would pass over the homes with blood smeared on the doorways. So shepherds would take these newborn lambs, inspect them, and then do you know what they did when they, do you know what they did to demarcate the lambs who were actually perfect? They would inspect all the lambs. Some wouldn't be perfect. Some had blemishes. The ones that were perfect, do you know what they did? They wrapped them in cloths. They would wrap the lambs in cloths to signify these ones are these ones are perfect. And only these ones can be used for the temple sacrifice. Luke 2, verses 12. The angel says to the shepherd, This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The angel says, This is going to be a sign. What's the sign? A sign is something that points to something beyond itself. But when the shepherds say, when the shepherds hear, you're going to find a baby wrapped in cloth, they, they know what the sign is. They're probably the only ones who know because it's their livelihood, but they actually know what the sign is. They get what's happening. This is why they're so excited. Because this is a child that is meant to be a perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. The shepherds understand this is a baby that has been born in order to die. So even in the incarnation, even as glorious as the incarnation is, God becomes a human being. There's a hint of a greater glory. It's a sign to an even greater glory in the atonement via the crucifixion. God hasn't just come near He's come near to self-sacrifice himself for us, for shepherds. Throughout history, some babies have become kings, but never has a king become a baby until Jesus. And this baby, this king became a baby in order to become a sacrificial lamb whose blood would save not the people who deserved it, not the mighty and the religious, the people who had their stuff together? Nope. This king became a baby to become a lamb, to die for those who couldn't save themselves, for shepherds, for nobody, for losers, for sinners, for you and for me. What a king. What a savior. What a gift. Let's pray. God, as we move into these final few days leading into Christmas, would you drill the depth and glory of Christmas deeper into our hearts? Whether we've heard this story so many times, it feels um, dry. Would you, would you bring it to life? Would you, would you peel back um, the layers of interference so that we can see your beauty and your power and your grace and your love in it, God? For those here who maybe don't know you, would you would you draw them to yourself this Christmas?
God, it is amazing love. How can it be that, that this king, this God, would come and die for me? God, help us to, help that message to just work its way into our heart so that we live lives that celebrate that. Thank you for saving us, God. Thank you for coming after shepherds, after lowly and despised things. And thank you for using us. Use us this week even as instruments to proclaim the goodness and greatness of who you are. In Jesus' name, 